Howdy! Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, dearies. Welcome to episode 41 of Understandable Radio. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Great, actually. Really good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff we don't know about this episode. So I'm particularly excited about highlighting our ignorance. We have a guest, though, who, who knows about stuff. Who is it? Lindsay Hagee. Uh, she's at UBC. Um, we're going to be uh, meeting her in a while. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Matt. Hey, Graham. Hello. Um, we'll introduce you properly later, but uh, please feel free to to chime in while we go through. I guess we, we there is a bit of news on the list today, so there is. Feel free, feel free to chime in at any point, Lindsay. Sounds good. I'm going to run through two bullet points real quick, um, just to do it. So a while back on this show maybe even last episode, Matt, yeah, it was last episode, Matt mm. told us about Mary Roach's awesome book called Packing for Mars. So I read it, it was amazing, and then I just couldn't stop reading her books. They're really funny, and they are they are really poignant, and they bring a bunch of information, but um, they're presented in a hilarious way. So read them all. Thank you for the suggestion, Matt. Welcome. Uh, well, point number two. Uh, I'm hosting the Twitter Roker account, I am SciComm, this week. So go over there and join us. I'm just soliciting ideas from everybody about science communication. It's been fun. That's it for news. Yeah, I yeah, that's cool. We don't have yeah, we we have a we have a Twitter. Do we like do people interact with that much? I just always wonder how how many of our sort of uh, cohort are really in Twitter. I really like Twitter a lot. Um, Me too. But it, I feel like it still gets a bad rap somehow. Well, it's noisy. neither here nor there because we don't really post all that much stuff on Twitter. Right. Yeah, it maybe it just depends who you follow. <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to find out when new episodes come out. Yes. Um, yeah, cool. Well, my only news really is uh, about the hackathon um, in June in Paris it is now sold out um, which is which is awesome uh, also slightly kind of uh, weird because there's never ha- we've never had that much interest before usually at this point there's like me and David Holmes are signed up and I'm starting to worry about how we, how many people we're gonna have and whether you know we've got way too big a venue and stuff like that so um, so it's a nice problem to have <laughs> But the problem now is that I've deliberately overbooked slightly, so I've got a kind of United Airlines problem. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to have to find a way. <laughs> I'm trying to just essentially get the venue to commit to being okay with a bit more, with a few more people. Um, I mean, it's you know, it's half a dozen people. I feel like you can always find room for half a dozen people, right? There's laps. One more, one more whack of thin mint. Um, and the only other thing I was going to mention um, 
because it just came up the other day on my Twitter feed, um, was the Open Collective. Uh, oh, I have written it down, opencollective.com. Um, it, it looks pretty cool. So it's a, a sort of GoFundMe slash Kickstarter, Patreon type thing, um, but specifically for open source projects. And what's kind of nice about it is it's not just a way to, to sort of ask your audience, community, uh, users to contribute funds. It is also a way for a community of people to look after those funds and disperse them. So the members of the open source project actually submit their expenses through the platform and the other people in the platform essentially approve them. So it's you know kind of a neat idea, I think, um, providing a, a little bit of governance um, around funding as well as the means to actually raise funds in the first place, which is, you know, a, a massive problem for open source projects. Even, you know, you might not think much about it. And of course, a lot of open source contributors do it out of love or part of their job or whatever. But, you know, if you host like a, a lunch and learn or an event, then you don't necessarily want to be buying snacks for everyone out of your own pocket. Um, so, uh, you know, so it really deals with all scales of, of funding. It's not just for kind of massive projects. So I, th I thought that was worth bringing up, opencollective.com. Um, that's all I wanted to mention, actually. Is there anything? Well, before we introduce our guest for real, you know what we have to do. We have to answer last week's Riddle Me This. Which what was that? I, I, I was wondering if that's coming before the interview or after it. But I guess you just <laughs> decided. <that question. laughs> this week it's before. This week it's before. Yeah. Because it's quick. So uh, last week we said, um, what is this thing? We showed you a picture, which is awesome on a radio show. We showed you a picture. And we said, what is this thing? And what year was it built? So what was that thing, Matt? It was a geophone. Do you have it? No, well, OK. So. It's now in pieces. I don't have it because I deconstructed it um, and took some significant photo documentation of the process, and I will be already posted it on Twitter. So okay. that will give you a hint. But the problem is when I deconstructed it, it wasn't really <clears throat> cooperating with me, so I had to cut it into pieces. Okay. Uh, anyway, so it worked out well. And, the one-way uh, process. The second part of the question was what year was it constructed, so can mm. you... Guess? Do you care to wager a guess? Uh, I think my guess were. I, uh, I'm going to guess 1945. <laughs> Pretty close, but not as else. <laughs> but not as close as one of our listeners, um, who is a non-software undergrounder. So we need to invite him to come join us there. The answer, folks, is that it was built in 1932. Oh wow! Hmm. Is that awesome? Yeah, it is. It survived. And was it military? I don't know, but I do know. A uh, surprising number of, I mean, there's a lot of military applications of geophones. Um, I do know that the tech, in case you haven't looked at the Twitter pictures yet, is ridiculously simple. It's literally a piece of magnet surrounded by a coil, just like a chunk of ferromagnetic material that's like all gangly and not even machined right. It's like a Huh. gnarly edges and stuff and there's like a coil going and that's it there's not no zero electronics so that's pretty cool wow um is there a sleeve as well or it just uses the brass casing as the other pole that's, 
that's it. It's just the the brass casing of the whole unit is all grounded together, wow. um, and it is screwed into a little pin on the top that that sticks into the ground. Yeah, that's that's cool. Hey, Matt, <laughs> who's our guest? <laughs> well, I uh, I mentioned already that our guest is uh, Lindsay Hagee, um, who is a, a doctoral student at UBC. I think in your third year, second year, fourth year. What? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, I've been here for a while. Yeah. That's wow. Time flies. Um, yeah, it really does. Fourth year. Okay, cool. So, uh, and welcome to uh, welcome to the show, Lindsay. Well, thanks for having me. You're in Vancouver. Yes, I am. On the campus. Yep, and it's not raining today, which is a nice change. <laughs> Bonus. Yeah, yeah. We. You're not our first guest from Vancouver. Actually, we've had a. At least, at least a couple others. I, th I feel like Jeremy Yoda comes to mind. Um, so uh, yeah, what like what are you? Um, what what year? <laughs> what time of year is it? It's April. So what's going on? Um, what's going on in the lab and in your research and stuff at this time of year? Is it busy times or? It's uh, actually this right now is a little calmer than it has been in the past few months. We've been uh, working pretty hard with Doug, my supervisor, getting material ready for the course that he's giving, the short course. Right. Uh, it's the DISC, the Distinguished Instructor Short Course through the SEG. Did the first, um, the first leg of that in sort of January and February. So there was a really big push on to get all of the material in place, like ready to go. And then um, they went and did that. And so now things are a little calmer before um, the next round gets going. So when does that uh, kick off? That'll be June. Uh, so Doug and Soggy will be off to Asia. Um, so okay. we've got stops in Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, and hopefully China. Right. Uh, yeah, if we can pull it off. Yeah. So we, we have links there in the show notes to the tour, the course material uh, for each location, and a description of, of what's going on. Um, but give us a description of what's going on and your involvement in the project. Sure. Uh, so Doug, my supervisor, uh, he was asked to do the short course. It's the first uh, non-seismic distinguished instructor short course. I'm just going to call it DISC yeah. uh, that SEG has ever had. Wow. And so he's doing uh, geophysical electromagnetics, fundamentals and applications, so everything. <laughs> um, and so we're trying to cover basically all of the electromagnetic surveys starting from DC resistivity all the way through to like frequency domain and time domain, um, showing like enough of the fundamentals to give people some intuition, but then doing case history throughout so that like every time you're shown um, an example or a survey type, there is there is actually a case history where somebody has gone and done that in the field and we show you like what it actually um, can do. And so what we're trying to do this year is um, a few things that are a little different. Like traditionally the SEG has done a book. Um, so they printed a book for participants. Um, and this year we wanted to try and make it a little more interactive and engaging. Uh, both for participants, but then also for our own research group, like being able to have multiple people contributing to this. Yeah. Uh, so we've decided to launch a website for that. So I've been involved in a lot of that. That's this uh, geosci.xyz. Uh, the one for the course is em.geosci.xyz, electromagnetics. Also linked in um, the show notes, by the way. 
Perfect. Yeah, and so that's a bunch of case histories. Uh, we've got some simulations that are hooked up there and a lot of the background theory. Um, so my involvement, I'm sort of, uh, well, myself and Soggy Kang, who's another PhD student here at UBC, uh, are working with Doug as co-instructors. Uh, so for the two or like either Soggy or myself, we'll travel with Doug and go and help deliver the course. Um, so it's in two days. The first day is like the lecture part. Um, and then we're actually, we've added on a second day. The SCG doesn't um, normally do this. But we're trying to make it like a bit of a two-way conversation is actually like sit down with participants and ask like, what are you working on? Um, and like, who should you be connected with? Or what type of resources do you, um, do you need to get hooked up with? I mean, there's, we know that there is a lot of open source software out there and um, a lot of people aren't aware of that. So yeah, yeah. trying to use it as a, a way to connect. That's that's really um, that's really cool. I I did I think I've done two discs. The last one I remember was Beyondo Beyondies. I don't even know what it was um, because I, it was basically just like being beaten up with a bunch of uh, with a piece of a piece go. of blackboard with equations written all over it, and um and it was a it wasn't a great experience. Uh, the book is pretty awesome. And I know that's a big source of revenue. One, well, I don't know. I assume that's a fairly big source of revenue for SEG bookstore, you know, selling the old notes. Um, so it's really cool that they were open to this kind of innovation from you guys. Because I think it, the whole idea came from you guys, right? I mean, it was yeah. a package deal. And yeah. you found them pretty receptive to the new format and so on. Reasonably so. Um, they were definitely hesitant at first, like because, you know, the book has always been associated with the disc and so mm. sort of teasing those ideas apart that you know you don't actually have to walk away with something in your hands to still have gained something because mm. mm. you know we we had to sell out a bit but they were quite receptive and how and has the um does the audience kind of get it how are they uh, how do they enjoy that second day it's been really successful um so there's a couple things that we've been able to do with that. Like one of the big initiatives our group has been doing is building up like simulation tools. So we've been using the Jupyter Notebook uh, and then hosting services like Microsoft Azure. Um, and they actually let you run notebooks live in the web and all you need is a login. So we can set up the environment and you know deal with all that sort of stuff yeah. and then have participants just running code. Um, so as you said, you know, like when you get beat over the head with equations on a blackboard. In this case, we're trying to just hook up those equations to slide bars and you can explore the pictures instead. Hmm. Um, so that's been hugely successful. Um, I bet it is. So that's really cool. It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun because all of a sudden, now all of a sudden you like have a way to engage and interact with the physics and just explore hmm. it and then decide, you know, I want to go a level deeper and drill into the equations a bit. But like first, just play with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, and so what are the days? What are the day twos like? It varies a bit by location and depending on sort of how advanced, I guess, the audience is. Um, so when we were in Denver, we did uh, we had a round of lightning talks from people who came. So there were like a dozen people who came hmm. um, and had them present um, like what they're working on, what kind of problems That's they brilliant. are interested in, what they want to be working on. Uh, we filmed all that and just like chatted afterwards. And then uh, in India, there's a blog about this and I can add that to the notes if it's not there. Um, 
they actually had 70 people show up for the second day. So there were 100 the first and 70 the second. And wow. so uh, what Doug and Soggy did was basically they like pulled up the apps, um, these Jupyter notebooks, walked through those in a little more detail um, based on questions that came up on the first day. And then actually started showing some of the code because uh, it's all built on Simpeg and open source software. So like if you actually wanted to go and extend this for your own problem, you can do that. Um, so they showed them and gave a bit of a tutorial of how you would start start to do that. What is Simpeg? Uh, so Simpeg is an open source Python project. We're doing uh, it's simulation and parameter estimation in geophysics. Uh, so we're trying to bring all of the geophysical simulations and inversions into one consistent framework. That's the goal with Simpeg. Um, and so there's a team of, I guess there's maybe like six or six or seven like core contributors right now. Um, mostly at UBC, but there's people, we're branching out a bit to like Colorado School of Mines and a few others. Um, and yeah, trying to collaborate on getting simulation and inversion tools out there and in the open. No, that's really cool. Um, I was just looking up, We just for our listeners, we talked to Rowan Cockett probably quite a bit about Simpeg. I don't remember entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, in episode 15, if you want to kind of find out more about that project. Um, or you can just go to the site and play with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's free to screw around with. And it is a really cool set of tools. So. How do you leverage the power of the Simpeg platform in the course, not just in uh, the disc course, but um, I guess for, for like demonstrating concepts and core ideas to people? Yeah, so I mean, there's like the apps and things like that that are built on this, um, but all of Doug's slides, well, not all, quite a number of his slides, especially when you look at like the fundamentals and things like that are all run with Simpeg. Uh, one of the things we've tried hard to do that I think is a little different than most of the uh, like inversion software you see out there is actually like give you hooks into the physics so that you can just go and look at the fields and fluxes everywhere. Hmm. Um, and so That's that cool. we've used a lot of, yeah, to build up these slides. So his slides are extremely visual. Um, they're, all, they're all posted on that DISC 2017 site. Um, for locations that we've been to. The ones that are upcoming, they're not quite there yet. But yeah, you can check it out. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that the other um, the other big innovation around your work and the, the, the work that you're doing in geoside.xyz, um, or Z, is uh, you all think really carefully about um, visualization and interactivity, and there's a real kind of undercurrent of you know exploring a kind of new way to do um, scientific literature almost not to get too grand about it but I mean that's the sort of that's the realm that you're playing in um, but but you know then when you think well actually we've had you know interactive figures and things since I mean CD-ROMs you know people were trying to sort of promote different a different kind of documentation there. And that, so that's like probably the late 80s, I, I would even say. Um, what do you think, like why why are we still like just reading static PDFs and papers and um, why isn't this normal yet? 
what you know what the SEG is in the business of sort of academic publishing and communication w why is it taking a couple of PhD students from UBC to come along and say here's a better way to do geophysical sort of literature that's an exciting it's <laughs> <laughs> a big question sorry yeah no it's great um, I like in a lot of ways I think it's not easy um, and so mm. the tools are really actually just coming out. Like if you sort of look at the set of tools that we're using and look under the hood at the tech of GeoSci, um, it's all built on open source. Like we're using Sphinx, we're using a lot of Python, continuous integration to start allowing collaboration and all of this. So we've sort of taken advantage of like all of the open source technology, maybe not all, but a lot of the open source technology hmm. that's come out like very recently. Right. Um, I also think the web is an important piece mm. here too. I mean, CD-ROMs, like you have to actually have it in your hands still. So it provides you a different way to interact with the content once you have it, but it's not necessarily easy to find. And so being able to actually easily deploy to the web, I think is a huge step. Yeah. Yeah. I, hmm. I mean, I just wonder, why it's taking so long for us as a sort of community to, I, you know, yeah, there's there's definitely, like you say, it's not easy. So there's a skill gap, I think, for a lot of people. Um, yeah, just I think it's really remarkable. You know, it's really awesome to see you guys pushing like this, this this kind of, you know, because it's a it's a teaching style in the end, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's a didactic tool. Um, so yeah, I I think it's really important. So I hope I hope you know SEG and the community at large kind of recognize the novelty and um, effectiveness of of, uh, of what you're doing with this. So yeah, kudos to you guys for pulling it off. It's really cool. Thanks. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I think is like a really exciting um, sort of speaking to the academic uh, publishing style of things. Mm. is uh, the way we've done case histories on EMGOSI. So in a lot of cases, the, the case history that is written up there is actually based on a published paper. And so right. it is like a short version of the paper. And a lot of people are actually like quite excited about contributing to that. It's because they've written this amazing paper. They've put a ton of effort into creating a piece of scientific work. Um, but like it's dense <laughs> and right. you need all those details there to make it like scientifically legitimate But at the same time, you know, you want to tell the story And so this is then a different way to to tell that story, which has been a lot of fun. Yeah no, that's, that's It's interesting great. to attack the communication aspect using interactive uh, software, but I, I you know as as scientists, but not just scientists, as as human beings, we work and learn, and create in interactive ways. It seems like um, there's so much power to be had in actual creation, in actual um, work. I mean, you can demonstrate scientific value tenfold, I think, using interactive software rather than just writing the equations down on a piece of paper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, uh, so I just wanted to mention, I can't remember which month it was, but the one of the recent um, geophysical tutorials in the leading edge was Leo Ueda's 
um, tutorial on uh, the NMO equation. And, you know, he, I mean, so there's a geophysicist, um, you know, postdoc, or well, I guess he's on, a, he's doing a postdoc now. I can't remember what he was at the time. And a smart guy, computer programmer, finding that going and looking up the papers or, you know, a chapter in a book or whatever and finding the equations was really just half the battle because the implementation yeah. is not obvious, you know, yeah. when it actually comes to sort of applying it to some data. And for me, that's that's always been the huge thing that's missing. It's like, great, I, I can read the equation and I get what you're trying to do, but I've got this data set and it doesn't look like that letter in your equation. Yeah. And I don't know what to do. <laughs> so, and I mean, even yeah, once you do huge. get the implementation, I mean, you see like the figure, and I don't know, they've applied some right. normalization factor or something like that. Totally. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you wonder if even the author could, I mean, even the author could reproduce yeah. what they've done, right? I mean, so yeah, it's it's really important. Hey, Lindsay, tell us a little bit more about um, GSI XYZ. Yeah, so GSI, I guess, um, well, we've talked a bit about the EM side of things. The way it actually started, so Doug started the original uh, GPG, which is Geophysics for Practicing Geoscientists, back in 2007. That was like the first version of this website that went up. Hmm. Um, he teaches a course here that is geophysics for non-geophysicists. It's mainly like geologic engineers who take this course. Um, a lot of, some geologists as well. Um, and so it's really aimed at like a first introduction to geophysics, why it might be useful, um, and giving you sort of enough background to be able to set reasonable expectations. Um, and, you know, particularly for geophysics, we are really like an integration piece. We need to be an integration piece when we're solving an interpretation problem. Like we need geology coming in. And mm -hmm. we're helping answer potentially like an engineering question. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's our job in a sense to figure out how to interface uh, to these other disciplines. And so being able to do that like web-based at least or communicate what we're doing web-based, it is, you know, you lower the barrier to entry a bit. Somebody just Googles, you know, NMO and you can go look that up and start to explore that a bit. Um, yeah, so that started some of the motivation. And then in a couple of years ago, when I sort of started at UBC, we were looking at this site, wanted to update some things, um, realized, you know, it was in HTML written with potentially Dreamweaver or something like that, um, which was the tools they had at the time. Fair enough. Uh, it's great for its, its time. But then, you know, things have moved on and we needed to update. So that's where we started playing around with um, trying to create, you know, reproducible figures and leverage a lot of the, the open source tools available with Python. And um, so we upgraded that and then the disk uh, came onto the table. And so we decided to then sort of do a, a similar uh, style textbook, interactive textbook with the electromagnetics piece. And then uh, John has actually hooked up, John Lehman has hooked up uh, a course that he gave as well. Yeah, the hardware course, exciting. was it? How many courses are being taught and are using uh, GSI? Yeah. That's a hard question to answer, actually. We've gotten a few emails from professors who have said, you know, this is an interesting resource. I'd like to use it in my course. Um, 
I think we, I forget the numbers offhand, but there are like, there are definitely people that are using it, but I don't know offhand how many, how many courses gotcha. we may never know. So, <laughs> yeah. so we've, we've had a question from one of our listeners that asked, he has an idea about a single and shared curriculum for geophysics courses, I think. Um, and I think it'd be really neat to have sort of this base, base curriculum or not, not curriculum, but like base uh, core concepts. Matt and I were just talking about this base core concepts that we should cover uh, in intro and medium level um, geophysics courses, right? These yeah. are the things that you're going to need to know. And here's the access to that information. So I hope we touched on that listener's idea in a right way. Um, so it's cool. If you guys have never been over to the website, check it out. There's a ton of useful information over there. And as Lindsay says, it's, it's increasing daily. Um, so Lindsay, tell us a little bit about your research, about what's going on for school right now. Sure. Uh, so I've been looking mostly at electromagnetics and applications to monitoring problems. Uh, so particularly hydraulic fracturing. Um, so the goal of a lot of the work I'm doing is basically trying to see, like, can we image a propped fracture? Mm. Uh, so can we actually like track out where the propent is going? Because uh, microseismic, you know, gives us where the pops and cracks are happening, but that is actually a larger volume overall than where the propent is going. Hmm. Um, and so, sorry, for anybody who doesn't know propent, uh, that is like the sand particles, basically, that they inject when they're doing a fracture to uh, keep the fracture pathways open afterwards so you can produce fluid through there. Um, and so the idea has been, and people, there's quite a number of people looking at this, like can you sort of coat the propent with something electrically conductive or magnetic uh, and basically sort of create a geophysical target subsurface that we can then go about and image. Hmm. What kind of research, what kind of research, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the answer there? <laughs> Sorry? Can, and can you? Does it work? Does it work? <laughs> uh, it's still, helpful. I mean, we're, there's indications that it, for certain um, geologic settings, it should, um, mm. but there's only a handful of field tests that have actually been done. And right now everybody is very tight-lipped about those data. Um, like from some serious people that I've talked to, it seems like there is signal there. Um, they're observing signal and simulations are saying that like we should be able to get signal. Okay. Um, what's really kind of cool about uh, a lot of these fracture settings is the steel cased wells. And actually, originally, a lot of the thought processes is like these are a giant pain for electromagnetics, which is in some cases, I mean, it's true. They're very hard to model because they're um, these giant, like they're extremely conductive, very thin and long. So trying to simulate Maxwell's equations when you have that and then a 3D fracture uh, is a bit tricky. But because it's so conductive, you actually can, it's essentially like an extended electrode. Right. It's easy to get current down to depth uh, and similarly easy to get it back up. So in so all ways that actually- are on the surface? Yeah, there's people who've looked at crosswell. Um, so you can sort of do surface to borehole, borehole to surface. Um, right. So we can play around with those types of uh, scenarios. But there, if you have receivers on the surface as well, um, we can start to get more of a 3D coverage. Right. That's cool. 
I remember we did a Crosswell seismic in Alberta. Oh man, that was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, I, I feel like the, the the data was sort of just made up. You could basically put any model you wanted in and just get whatever seismic you wanted. It was kind of it was, kind of, it was like the uh, the ultimate um, seismic section generator in a way. Essentially, a way of forward modeling seismic, but but with a five hundred thousand dollar experiment. Hopefully, that client isn't listening to this episode. <laughs> yeah. I'm not mentioning any names. I'm just saying it was total black magic and didn't work at all. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, we can do a little better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but it's interesting though these these experiments. Obviously, that would be massively value. You know, there'd be a huge amount of value in being able to image those um, problem filled. Uh, fracks, um, and so lots of people doing experiments, and everyone's very tight-lipped about the results, which would be very valuable if known. And there's good evidence that there may be signal. That to me, that scenario is ripe for bullshit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's because because you'd be justified in making a claim of being able to sell a very valuable service. Yep. And um, and and of course, like a lot of things in the subsurface, very hard to corroborate anything, right? <clears throat> so uh, I, it, it's just it's interesting to see stuff like that unfold, and I'm just really glad that there are really smart, honest people in the middle of it that can go, yeah, that sounds dodgy or whatever, because um, industrial applied science doesn't always, <laughs> you know, doesn't always unfold. Yeah. It, well, and there's press releases and things like that that have come out, um, and people are claiming to be imaging already. Um, right. Which is intimidating because you don't. I mean, there's no discussed in the press release. Um, right. And from yeah, like in terms of inversion capabilities and things like that, I know a lot of the companies who would be looking at this have probably not looked at the EM problem before and this is a challenging scenario to be running that in so it's yeah yeah so you are an inversion specialist and your focus is on the in this case on these on these uh, propagation of propin and detection through em um, are you running um, model scale experiments or are you just doing numerical modeling i'm just doing numerical modeling do you is there is it possible to get some sort of better idea about how these how this experiment would go if we say built a sandbox and ran some little drill string down it? Well, one of the things that would be extremely valuable for me right now is um, like one of the big questions at the starting point is what actually are the bulk physical properties of a fractured volume of rock? We're never going to image down to like individual fractures. Sure. Um, so what we're going to see is sort of like the the average effect of a propped fracture through a block of rock. Hmm. Um, and so that's a question in upscaling: is how do we sort of approximate all of this complexity with a number? Um, and so that is something that actually would be very valuable from a lab scale uh, side of things. Cool, Matt, start building it's, sandbox. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I. <laughs> Like, don't provoke me, because um, <laughs> I mean, I wish I knew more about lab lab work and sort of physical experiments um, and physical modeling. Because there's uh, all sorts of experiments I'd love to run 
And I, and I think that it could make, um, in particular, I think there's a few experiments that would actually make a sort of spectator sport and um, that, you, you know, you could you could do sort of in uh, public, as it were, at a conference or something. And um, I don't know, when you see pictures of flume tanks uh, and, and that kind of thing that the sedimentologists uh, are using and, and the amount of data and insight that they get from them, um, I feel like maybe, yeah, we do too much computers in geophysics. Anyway. Yep, I'm, I'm jealous of people that get to play with hardware for sure. Yeah, but then you've got, you know, the mixture of sort of electronics with mud and water and things suddenly get really difficult and expensive. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> those are surmountable problems, I think. You got your one geophone, we've got to start, if you can put it back together again. Nope. <laughs> My next, I don't know if I should be saying this on live television. Matt's already cursed, so it's okay. they're already going to throw us off anyway. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm potentially building a flamethrower to shoot an 80-foot flame. Um, <laughs> so we can bring that to SEG or something in the in the uh, exhibition hall and pop one off. Um, what is that so, for, though? Oh, is this related it. to Don't Mardi worry about it. It's got to be related to Mardi Gras. And what happened to the, like, the shopping cart thing or whatever that was, the golf cart? There was some kind of 80-mile-an-hour lawnmower or... Oh, that's right. Yeah. No, that's a, that will have to be a, a, a totally separate episode. We can discuss those. It was things. the giant speaker. Hey, like, Lindsay. What happened to that? Is that related? I recently wrote a blog post on inverse problems uh, as they exist as a general quantity. And um, so I split this thing up into two separate blog posts. One was written for a lay audience, and one was written for a, an audience of people who understand algebra. Um, because I did a terrible job at it, maybe we can have an expert like you give us a definition of inverse problems or inversion uh, as a whole, as a field. As a field. As an experiment. <laughs> I'll take I don't a crack know. at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in an inverse problem, what we're trying to do is you've gone out and you've collected data from some sort of experiment, so some sort of geophysical experiment. We've used a source uh, which has excited physical responses in the subsurface, and we measured data. Um, so that's our ground truth. And then what we actually want to do is go in and figure out what is the model that um, supports those data. So what is the Earth model that gives rise to those data? And so when you actually think about trying to pose an inverse problem, we have a finite number of data uh, and a large 3D Earth. And so we don't actually have enough data to uniquely characterize that model. And so what we need to then do is go in and impose some sort of regularization, um, which basically is like a set of constraints that says, you know, this should be geologically reasonable. That's air quotes. <laughs> um, because that is an interpretation step. Mm. Absolutely necessary to get us to a solution. So the way we often do it is we pose it as an optimization problem, where we basically say, let's try and fit our data uh, so we're going to simulate data on a bunch of models. We'll try and fit what we observed and then put that subject to uh, some regularization that says this should be geologically reasonable. So at the end of the day, we're trying to get a model that fits our data. Yeah, cool. Concise. I like it. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say by rambling on for 16 pages or something. Cool. Um, well, I, I, I like that definition because I, uh, and I think um, 
you know, speaking as a geologist, a lot of geologists don't know anything about inversion and inverse problems and and models and simulation, but they should, yeah. you know, because I mean, basically trying to figure out the Earth's model from some data is what all geoscientists are doing. Yeah. Right? It's just that some of them have got some really awesome tools to help them and others are basically, this is going to come out wrong, but I mean, basically they're sitting at their desk with colored pencils trying to, trying to figure it out. And I'm, I'm not saying that that. It sure did come out sounding snarky. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've been there. It, A, it's, it's fun. And B, you could, there is that you can convince yourself that it's effective. Um, unfortunately, C, you don't always get to find out if it actually was effective or not. It's really just comes down to where you score on the believability index among your peers, which is that's the misfit. <laughs> it's not very accurate. But um, and so I, I think there's plenty of room still for intuition in those regularization constraints and what kind of modeling you do and all the rest of it we just haven't as a discipline figured out how to get the best out of both of those worlds. It feels a bit like you're either one or the other. Yeah. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you nailed it. And in fact, I, you, you uh, reminded me of the question that I'm going to ask you to distract you before we sign off today. It's related to inverse problems. So get ready for that. I made the claim related to what to to your claim uh, that inverse problems are more important than forward problems. <laughs> what well, do you think about that? Doesn't one always oh. imply the other? Yes, they're they're always related, but I think that all forward problems are solved. All no. important forward problems are solved. No. Or can be trivially solved. Okay. No, I would, I would disagree. <laughs> it's okay. definitely, it's, that is patently false. Okay, go. What well, you got, I man? mean, look at, I mean, basically, going out and doing field work or, or, or collecting a well log or seismic data, you're trying to, essentially, you're trying to invert for the 4D state of the planet Earth. Like, mm -hmm. that, right? I mean, you can't, you can't forward model that. We don't know how to forward model that. Uh, and people are, are, are trying, right? But I mean, it's the the problem is that the Earth is essentially is has infinite dimension or degrees of freedom. So we so it, like almost by definition, I feel like you can't model it. Probably I'll eat my words in four thousand years, but <laughs> um, yeah, I just feel like it's it, it's such an it's sort of the, the whole system is so complex, uh, constrained, and ill-posed. <laughs> everything we do is a, is a massive oversimplification. Yeah. So yeah, you'd say that, that getting the model is is tough, right? It's a complicated thing to do. Yeah, and <laughs> your your forward problem though is also like your sanity check on your ground truth. So your data are the thing yes. that you've measured, and your forward model is your best attempt at trying to reproduce those data. Right. And so your forward model is like the only thing that basically keeps you in that data-driven approach is yes. that 
this That's is my true. model is actually somewhat grounded in reality. Um, but so. but again, gen the generation of the model is the inverse problem. That's the hard thing. Matt? Right, but I mean, if you just sort of say, well, the forward problem is the generation of of data, then you, I guess saying that you've solved that problem means that you can achieve a misfit of zero for a data set. Doesn't it? Isn't that what that implies? So I, th I think that the forward problem is just a check. It is a reality check for sure. It tells you if your, your model is correct. It, um, but the hard thing, the fun thing, the thing that we need to solve is the inverse problem. OK, I, I guess you're saying for a given model, the forward problem is trivial. It's dead. The forward problem is dead. It's dead. It's dead. Well, you still need it. Yeah. Well, and yes. I mean, with stuff like um, the oil field settings that we're looking at now with EM, I mean, the forward problem is we don't know. I mean, dealing with steel infrastructure, actually, like, how do you simulate that? Hmm. That is still a big question. Um, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing, and I think. I don't know, when you're referring to the inversion, is that also the interpretation? Because, um, yes, like... Yes, it's, it's this whole setting. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, so in the real... So modeling, modeling, if you're doing these things just on computers, I mean, you have these nice, concise uh, numerical solutions, and that's wonderful. I mean, the, the cool thing, in the in reality, I, I, I realize that the forward problem is not dead. I mean, it because... You know, in a in sort of a deconvolution textbook problem, you have a you have a function and a transfer function and a signal, you know, output or whatever. Uh, but in the real world, like you're missing two of those things, right? Not just one of those things. So yes, they're all related. Yeah, it's. It, it's but the forward problem is dead. <laughs> <laughs> also, about like the, the hypothesis, I think that actually hypothesis testing. And using your forward model as hmm. a hypothesis tester. Um, so if you get out an inversion result, and you know you see perhaps something connected at depth, um, is that true or not? Like your forward model then allows you to ask those questions. Like, can I pull this piece out and still reproduce my data? Like, if I pull out that connection at depth, and you know the, it doesn't change my data, then um, you need to be careful with that. So it's like hmm. it's all intermingled. <laughs> hmm. Indeed. Lindsay, what are you reading at the moment? What am I re I am reading The Undoing Project uh, by Michael Lewis. So he wrote um, Moneyball and The Big Short. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this one and is Flash about... Boys. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> this one's about um, Danny Kahneman and Amos Traversky. Probably butchering that name. Um, they are two Israeli psychologists who are sort of credited with... Um, inventing the field of behavioral economics. Right. Um, so it's a cool book because he's actually like gone through and he tells their story as scientific collaborators, as well as talking about their discoveries. Um, right, right. Yeah, but like it was a really cool scientific collaboration story. So I'm enjoying that. And is that is that a new book of his? Yeah, I think it came out like reasonably recently. Okay. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed Flash Boys. 
it was a real eye opener. I read it in one sitting, um, so I'm definitely going to look look that up because that all the Kahneman Tversky papers and books and things are all fascinating. Tell us about yeah. Flash Boys, man. You what? Tell us about Flash Boys. Flash Boys is about um, high frequency trading and its devastating effect on markets, and uh, and it's just really interesting, sort of reading about you know pe like people paying to have their servers moved across the floor of a server room so that it can be closer to the uh, network interface so that it, they win a few nanoseconds and it's especially kind of cool i think um for for canadians to read because the heroes of the story um are some traders at rbc who were basically getting completely shafted by the, this high frequency trade they they essentially thought they got trading obviously tried to move into wall street um they couldn't understand what was going on they bought this high frequency trading firm that they no one knew what they were doing basically and um you know for a while it was making money uh it seemed completely impenetrable to them and then this guy essentially decided to try and figure it out everyone he talked to couldn't explain how high frequency trading worked, right? It seemed like, in fact, he talks about this one little group of Russian hackers who or programmers who learned to program on these sort of Russian mainframes, but with very limited access to the actual computer. So they had to learn to program by writing everything down. And then they got one shot at running their algorithms. So they were brilliant at like optimization and you know debugging and stuff. And they just go around like this little hit squad to you know Swiss Bank or Goldman Sachs where they work for two years implement their high frequency trading software and then leave go out on their own for 10 months make a stack of money go do it again and yeah it's I mean I don't know much about Wall Street but I mean reading it is just a real eye-opener the things that go on the banks were all creating these dark pools of secret uh, trading with, with essentially no accountability to anyone so that people could make these sort of trades uh, in the way they wanted to off market. Um, then it turns out that they're all like competing against their own internal uh, stockbrokers. So, you know, who are obviously trying to do the best for their customers, but getting totally undermined um, by these high frequency traders of their own. Um, but what's fascinating, just to, sorry, I'm going on, I realize. He likes the book, apparently. But what's really cool is um, that they find a solution to it, and the solution depends on physics and the speed of light. So um, it, it's it's pretty awesome. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read them both. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, finish by telling you I'm reading uh, Ghost in the Shell by Masamune Shiro, apparently. Um, I just looked him up because I couldn't remember the name of the author, but it's the... Uh, manga version of the very famous anime movie, which obviously is being released very soon or has been released already, I'm not sure, in this somewhat controversial Hollywood version. Cool. I picked it Good. up in Japan and haven't, haven't read it yet, so. <laughs> well, it's time to do that riddle me this thing, folks. I like this one.
Oh yeah, no, I'm looking do forward to, to that. Do you want me to? T- oh, you haven't even read it yet. Okay, I'll say it. This is a good one. Okay, so Albite and Anorthite look very similar, clear in uh, nice samples. So let's say that we prepare um, 49 samples of Albite and one sample of Anorthite. So to the naked eye, they all look the same. Uh, the difference being is that um, the Anorthite is more dense. It has a higher density than albite. And I don't have the densities written down here, but you can look them up yourself. Huh? Huh? So one of the samples weighs, the anorthite weighs a few grams more than the rest, than the other 49 samples. All right. So you've got 50 samples sitting out on a table and we say, here's a balance scale. Figure out which one is the anorthite. So by the way, balance scale, in case you don't know what a balance scale is, is one of those little sticks with the two baskets hanging down from the bottom of it that they have in all the legal images. You know, you weigh two things. It doesn't give you a uh, quantitative measurement of weight, but it will tell you which which of the things is heavier. Okay, so we give you a balance scale. We give you these 50 samples, and we say, figure out which one's the underthite. What's the least number of weighings you need to make in order to identify the anorthite sample. One, if you're lucky. Are they all the same volume? <laughs> are they the same volume, or are they all different sizes? They're all the same volume. They're all the same shape. You can't tell them apart, except for the except for the, the weight. Um, one, if you're lucky, Matt says. So yes, true. Um, but my question is more like, in the worst case scenario, What's the least number of weighings you'd need to make? Now, the answer, here's your here's hint number one, and these hints are important, by the way. Hint number one is it's less than 50 weighings. If you have 50 samples, obviously you could you could figure out in the worst case scenario which one it was by weighing 50 different things. Okay. So there's a hint number two. Should I give hint number two now? Yeah, I think I should. I think I should. Okay, so um, there is a somewhat obvious answer, algorithm to answer this question. And hint number two is to lead you off of that, which is the incorrect solution. So. <laughs> Wait, can you really call that a hint? <laughs> yes, no, okay. Uh, hint number two is a red herring. Just no, hint number two is the right. No, <laughs> hint number two is right. I'm sorry. I was confusing. So there is an algorithm which is the incorrect answer, but is very obvious. Oh, I see. So, so hint number two is to make you not waste your time on the obvious algorithm. So hint number two is this. Understood. It takes less than five weighings wow. to identify the sample. So, so the answer has to be four. <laughs> or three or two or one. <laughs> okay. Very good. Yeah. Okay, so Matt has the answer to this uh, riddle written down in a document that he can access, but everyone else is encouraged. Everyone else is encouraged to submit an answer. Um, I like this one, so um, do it, you know? It's, it's gonna be fun, you're gonna like it. Yeah, and which two minerals was it again? Does it matter? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to imply that at all, Graham. I don't know where okay. you got that idea Okay, from. look, you, at least I'm trying to make these things geologic, okay? <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um, okay, so. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Lindsay, thank you for coming to join us on the show. Well, thanks and for having me. 
we hope you're going to come back because you're doing like 700 things at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to need to know how they're all going. If you'd like to find out more about one or 700 of Lindsay's projects, go to the show notes because everything is referenced in there and you can literally spend a week reading all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when, you, when are you slated to finish? That's, that's a dangerous question. Oh. <laughs> I apologize. That's right. Don't say it on live air. At least I like to watch the show. I like to sort of ask kind of naively and then, you know, just in good faith because I feel like. Um, you know, it's it's an aspiration. So yeah. You, can, yeah, you can just kind of be like, oh, well, that's I'm glad you asked, Matt. Here's the date that I'll be finished. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, plan is like wrapping up early fall. Um, so, so first of September. Wow. No, exactly. first of October, you'll be out. First of October, I'll be done. Yeah. Uh, and still be involved though with the disc. So I'll be at UBC at least uh, through the winter. Okay. Right. Cool. Very cool. Nice. Hey, Matt. Here we go. Here we go. What can I do for you? <laughs> What's a greens function? Yeah, I, I, I really want to know the answer to this question. <laughs> Both of you could probably explain it beautifully. But I'm asking you, man. I'm pretty sure I asked Give that question best. myself on this show in like episode two. I feel like we've, we've been there. Well, it's an ep it, now it's episode forty-one, man. You you must know the answer now. Give us no. give us a brief a no, brief. I, I have no idea. Sign us off, Matt. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for listening, everyone. Tune in next week when we'll be discussing Green's functions at length. Um, are we allowed to talk about what's next week? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So next week we're going to be live with uh, with Chris Jackson on his lecture tour. So I'm pretty excited about that um, in New York City. So please join us for that live on YouTube or online under sampledbrady.io um, <laughs> for the podcast later. Thanks again, Lindsay. Cheers, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye.